Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 14th, 2017. Slash Film Daily is a podcast published daily every weekday on SlashFilm.com covering the latest news and features from the site. On today's show in the news, we're going to be talking about a new study that definitively tells us if Rotten Tomato scores determine the uh, or impact the box office. Uh, we're going to be talking about Stephen King's Suffer the Little Children, which is getting a movie adaptation in the wake of it. Uh, Stan Lee has already filmed a bunch of Marvel cameos, find out how many, and uh, the Apple TV 4K announcements that we didn't get to cover yesterday. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, we're going to do something unusual. We're going to be talking about that Devin Faraci situation that you may have seen on film twitter uh we don't usually get into that kind of area but we'll be talking about that because i feel like the podcast is a good uh good arena to have a discussion about that and in the mailbag we'll be talking about the lucasfilm story group and their role in the upcoming star wars movies uh i'm peter serretta and with me on today's podcast are slash film writer why tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. It's Slash Film Editor, Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Okay, guys. Uh, let's just jump into the news because I think this is going to be uh, a long one. Um, <laughs> uh, a new study says that Rotten Tomatoes scores have no impact on the box office. I was being a little facetious by saying it definitively says that. It, nothing can definitively say that. But uh, what do we know, HD? Yeah, so this study uh, was published by the uh, Data and Analytics Project at the University of Southern California's Entertainment Technology Center. Um, it was conducted by Eves Berquist, and it came right on the tails of that New York Times article uh, talking uh, titled Attack of Rotten Tomatoes. I think that was the, the headline, but it was basically uh, positing the theory that Rotten Tomatoes was the culprit of a rotten summer movie box office season. Uh, but according to the study, that is not the case. So the study um, analyzed data from Rotten Tomatoes since 2000, and it came to the conclusion that Rotten Tomatoes scores have never played a very big role in driving box office performance, either positively or negatively. 
Um, and it does also mention that there is an interesting correlation that's starting to come to the surface in which uh, audience scores and critic scores are starting to be increasingly correlated. Um, and the study Sorry, the study theorizes that uh, audiences are becoming experts at smelling a bad movie and staying away. Yeah, so the study says, I think, what we said previously on the podcast and on the site, that it's just kind of social media and audiences becoming smarter about what they're spending their money at on at the cinema. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's going to escalate as, you know, obviously this whole world becomes more connected on social media. You know, you're going to hear the bad buzz sooner and sooner and uh yeah that smell <laughs> you stay away <laughs> um but going from bad to good one of the good films at multiplexes this past weekend was stephen king's it and that did record numbers because it was good and because people wanted to see it uh now uh stephen king's whole library i'm i'm, I'm guessing studios are pouring over and trying to get rights and trying to get other stephen king movies uh to the big screen jacob you have news about one more Yes, uh, right now the Stephen King short story "Suffer Little Children" is the next uh, Stephen King project that's been announced. This is on top of numerous other movies and TV shows that are in the works right now. There's definitely a Stephen King renaissance going on. And uh, as a quick side note, our own Chris Evangelista recently ranked every single Stephen King movie and miniseries for the site, and came to the conclusion I think a lot of people have realized is that most Stephen King movies are really bad. So in the wake of it being really good, I'm curious if the trend will be maybe making good this time. But <laughs> I guess the, uh, the the story here is that Sean Carter, a uh, young filmmaker, up-and-comer, responsible for the 2009 movie The Killing Room and the upcoming horror movie Keep Watching, is signed on to direct Suffer Little Children. And it is an adaptation of the 1972 story of the same name. Interestingly, it wasn't actually published in a book, in, in, a, in a collection, until 1993's Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So even though it was written in the 70s and come from a very different era of Stephen King's career, if you read it in, if you kind of read it in the era it was published, it's this uh, blast of nastiness <laughs> at a time when Stephen King was getting less nasty. Uh, early King is very gruesome. He's very mean. He's very brutal and very unforgiving. And Suffer Little Children comes come from that era. And it's about a teacher who starts to realize that her young students in her classroom may not be human and maybe creatures plotting some kind of takeover. And I can't imagine the ending of the story making to the big screen today. It's a very upsetting, very upfront, very violent conclusion. But this Sean Carter guy, I'm not, I'm not familiar with his work. But he did receive a filmmaking grant from Martin Scorsese, the great Martin Scorsese. So clearly there's something going on here with this guy. And I don't know why this short story. I don't know why this talent for this short story. And for all I know, this is in the works before it came out. But you know what? I'm all for more Stephen King movies, especially if people are going to start realizing that they can be good. I'm curious if HT and Peter have any opinions on more Stephen King movies like this. I, I just want to say we're, I'm going to link Chris's piece uh, ranking all the Stephen King movies in the show notes. So if you want to find out where it ranks in that listing, uh, you know, go read it. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm kind of I have a love hate relationship with Stephen King. I, I feel like he's written so many things and not not a lot of them are great. 
but a few the, the the select few that are great are incredible um and you know i haven't read a lot of a short story work but i know a couple of those have been turned into movies and some good movies at that so uh, i'm interested to see more of those uh, like exploring more of those because a stephen king short story you know might be a novella in someone else's arena um and uh you know his normal books are at the range that you know you're cutting so much to get it into a 120 minute movie so um yeah i'm interested to see more what about you hd yeah i'm also kind of half and half on stephen king i've read more of his bad books than i read of his good books uh so i i welcome more um adaptations and movies that are offer original stories so uh yeah i i look forward to it i think it could be good or bad essentially considering the ratio of his uh the quality of his stories it's interesting i usually think he has a great first half of his book his setups and his uh you know setting up the characters are always awesome and it's always like that last third that is really disappointing to me with his books yeah yeah this is is a regular issue with him and i guess why his short story collections tend to be really strong is that when he's working maybe 10 to 50 pages he doesn't have the space to, to set you up for disappointment. He, he tends to deliver home runs more often than his short stories. And while Suffer Little Children is not a short story that I remember vividly, it makes good on the promise of what it sets out to do. It's just this short, nasty, intense little story that even King himself says has no redeeming social merit whatsoever. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the appeal. So I'm, I'm wondering uh, if they can capture that angle. Because I feel like a lot of King adaptations especially the bad ones tend to pull the emotional or more horrifying punches. What what are some of the short stories from Stephen King that have been adapted into movies? Stand by me. Um, yeah, it's a novella technically, but yes. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 just, well, I just actually do HD. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> okay. So the short stories that have spawned, you know, segments in creep show, have spawned Children of the Corn, uh, Cat's Eye, Maximum Overdrive. Terrible um, movie, but you have to see it, guys. You have to see Maximum Overdrive. Go see that mess. The Lawnmower Man, uh, Graveyard Shift, um, The Night Flyer. I guess this isn't the greatest of, of, of a line of movies. 1408, No Smoking. It's a really good movie. I like that one a lot. But even looking at this list, uh, like we put, we put up a list of all the short stories that have been adapted. Like, The Mangler is a good short story. It's a terrible movie. Night Flyer is a good short story. It's a terrible movie. Um, um, you know what? I, I, like I, that, I like the TV show Nightmares and Dreamscapes that had some good uh, – yeah. I mean, I think it was like one-hour uh, episodes, eight one-hour episodes, and that was based on his short stories. Yeah. So I, I feel like just like the adaptations of his full-length novels, the short stories are hit and miss. And I feel like there's really good material here. That's just waiting to be made in, into something that's not garbage. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see if it actually gets made. Um, moving on. Stanley has had a cameo in every single Marvel Studios production. He's had a cameo in almost all the Marvel uh, movies, even outside of Marvel Studio- Studios, the stuff that Fox has done, stuff that Sony's done. Um, and we have just learned that he has filmed a bunch of upcoming cameos for Marvel movies. HT, what do we know? Yes, so he is confirmed to have filmed cameos for Avengers Infinity War, uh, Avengers 4, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 
Black Panther, and Thor Ragnarok. Uh, so Chris Hemsworth has already lauded uh, Stan Lee's cameo in Thor Ragnarok as one of his best and funniest yet. Um, but we don't know much about what his cameos in the other uh, four movies will be. Um, and he has not yet been confirmed for uh, Captain Marvel and Spider-Man Homecoming sequels or cameos in those films, but neither of those are yet in production. Uh, so those are five more movies that we will be guaranteed Stan Lee cameos in, which is good because um, the comic book creator is now 94 years old. He's pushing 95, uh, which is he's getting close to the centennial mark right there. And um, he's been uh, easing back on his comic his comic conventions appearances as well as other outside appearances. So it may be that we'll be seeing fewer cameos or maybe shorter cameos from him in the future, but he's always been eager to just show up in movies of the creations that he's made. Well, it seems like they're doing more and more of these where I I think the last set of cameos were directed by James Gunn, the one that you saw in Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, Guardians, a bunch of them, like all in one shot. Um, instead of having Stanley have to fly to each one of these um, film productions, so I'm assuming he shot, you know, a lot of these in one big chunk. Um, it's interesting that they're doing that because uh, it's interesting to see if they actually fit <laughs> in the movies as well as they mm-hmm. would if he was actually there. And uh, sadly, I'm fearing, you know, Stanley's life is is you know w- w- he doesn't have that many years left on him what happens if he were to die tomorrow would they still include these five cameos in the upcoming films would as a tribute or would that be weird watching the films with seeing him pop up kind of in a co- comedy capacity would i don't he- think so I, I think he's such a huge ham i think that ghost stan lee would get a kick out of him coming back from the grave to appear a few more times yeah i think uh, i agree with that I think they should pull Stan Lee into a studio for a weekend and just film, you know, as many possible cameos as possible on green screens and sets just so that they could have ghost Stan Lee in the next hundred years of Marvel movies. They could just find ways. What I think they should do is uh, film like a whole uh, Marvel one shot surrounding his uh, character, which is now a character, uh, according to Kevin Feige, who is uh, consistently showing up in all these Marvel movies and just have just have them cut from like that one shot or something and then release the one shot later or something like that. Uh, Cause he's uh, canonically now a character uh, who shows up at life altering events throughout the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, not, he doesn't have a name yet, but yeah, he's one of the watchers. Uh, yes. It would, um, if they could find a way, if they could find a writer that could, could connect all the dots of all those cameos and put it into a short that's not more than you know 15 minutes long it would be brilliant um but i think that's a lot of ground to cover i'm not sure if they could do that Mm -hmm. um moving on apple had their keynote on tuesday morning and part of the keynote uh they announced a new apple tv apple tv 4k I know none of us have a 4K television um, yet. I have a pro- I have projectors in my house, and 4K projectors are very cost prohibitive at at this point. So I don't th- see myself getting a 4K projector anytime soon. Even though I could benefit from 4K, like most people, I don't think if you're watching a 60 inch TV and you're five, you know, six feet away from the television, you can't. Your eyes can't make out the difference of the of the pixels from a 
4K TV to HDTV, at least according to a lot of studies. Um, but if it was a, on a projector at, you know, the, the size that I have it in my living room, I could benefit from that. Um, but anyways, okay, so why should you care about the Apple TV 4K is, uh, number one, uh, if you have bought HD movies on iTunes... Apple has made a deal with the studios to basically give you an upgrade to 4K. So if you buy this Apple TV 4K, you now own the 4K versions of all these movies. So think about this like as if if you had bought DVDs and the studios were like, here, we're going to upgrade all your DVDs to HD Blu-ray copies. I mean, that's awesome. Uh, I, I know that Apple probably had to fight hard to get that. That is really cool. And they're also going to be selling each uh, 4K movies for the same price that they sell HD movies, which I think is 15 or 20 bucks. If you go to a store, a retail store, and try to buy a 4K movie, I think they start at like 30 bucks. So to undercut the physical retail price, I think this is the death of physical media right here. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing really else big about this other than those those uh, those points. What do you guys think? Is this something that will will encourage you to get a 4K television, or is this something you don't even care about? I love my Blu-rays. I love my Blu-rays so much, Peter. But your Blu-rays I, I, are only 1080p. You're already in, you're already in the past. But I I, I just don't want. The future be digital. I don't like the idea of of my movies being able to vanish in a bureaucratic hiccup someday. I know, I know people always say it's not going to happen, but I like the fact that I can at any time I want go to my library, which I call my DVD and book room, pull down a movie I want to watch and watch it. I don't care if it's on Netflix. I don't care if if, if Apple has made it available for purchase in 4K. It's there. But here, here's how yeah. you do it, Jacob. You buy the Blu-rays that have a digi- free digital copy along with it. Then you unlock the free digital copy on your iTunes. And now if you had done that for all the Blu-rays that had digital copies, you would now have 4K versions of those movies waiting on your Apple TV 4K whenever you end up buying that. You see, Peter, you're a very smart man, but I'm also <laughs> I'm also a very sentimental garbage person who likes having his stuff on display, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so my whole this is actually a really cool thing. If you like digital movies, I think this is genuinely cool, and I'm very happy for people who have gone this direction. But you casually tossing around the phrase "death of physical media," it bums me out. Not gonna lie, it, it really makes me want to cry just a little bit. But uh, HT, what do you think about this? This might be heresy for someone who is a movie buff, but I don't really care about 4K. Uh, I just have my computer and I watch everything on Netflix and or rent it on Amazon. Oh, you're such um, a, you're such a millennial. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a millennial, but I also side somewhat with um, Jacob on the physical media side because I also I refuse to read books that are not physical copies. I get headaches when I try to read them on a Kindle or anything. So I need that, and if I especially especially love a movie, I will often buy it on blu-ray so what, what about renting movies how do you rent movies uh just on amazon usually for a temporary amount of time for 399 uh and again netflix and hulu my best friends yeah i i mean i've said in the past on this podcast that i have gone from a person that owned 3,000 dvds to a person who owns a drawer of blu-rays and typically now i don't buy movies 
I will rent them because I think for three ninety nine or however much it costs to rent, I'm probably not going to watch that movie enough times to make it worth that twenty dollar price tag. So, um, but it's cool that I will now be able to rent movies for the same price as HD movies to watch mm-hmm. them in four K. Uh, that'll help me uh, whenever I end up getting this four K projector. But uh, I don't see that day coming anytime soon. Okay, guys, we're gonna go out of the news. And we're going to get a little bit serious here. Um, I'm not sure if you noticed. There's been some news about a former movie blogger named Devin Faraci, uh, who who is uh, Devin Faraci. Okay, so he started writing for the site called Chud. He started this site with the Alamo Draft House. Uh, which eventually became Birth, Death, Movies. I think it was called Badass Digest at first. And um, he was known to be a very abrasive blogger. He would, uh, maybe even a borderline bully. Uh, I I know um, Damon Lindelof famously left Twitter because of him and has said on a podcast that he was forced into therapy based on uh, his quote-unquote bullying. Um, But... uh, my experiences with him is he's he's a great he was a great writer. Uh, he was probably one of the best writers in in the movie space. Uh, in person, he was always nice to me and he was supportive of me when Slash Film came about. Um, but he was never uh, a friend of mine. Um, he was a huge feminist advocate in his later years. Um, in October 2016, a woman came out claiming she was groped by him. Uh, in 2003, so it wasn't like something recent. Uh, Devin apologized immediately, but admitted he didn't remember the incident. Uh, shortly after, he was removed from his position as editor of the site and left to get help for his alcoholism. Uh, I know he's also become a Buddhist. Uh, he kind of disappeared from the online landscape. Uh, after this happened, others came out with accusations against Devin, uh, one of who apparently received a personal email from Alamo Drafthouse founder and owner Tim Leake asking that she keep the dialogue about the accusation between them. Uh, this is something that has recently come about. Um, Devin... Uh, you know, has been gone from the internet. He ha- appeared on Letterboxd, uh, that app. He would write his reviews for a selected few that would read them on his personal Letterboxd account. And um, he his Twitter account uh, started retweeting a certain tweet, tweets. Um, it was dormant for a long time. Uh, but apparently we have learned that Devin was still working for the Alamo Drafthouse. Uh, who I should say, Alamo Drafthouse is this movie theater chain that started in Austin, Texas. It's amazing they own mondo who makes all those prints uh they're incredible you can eat food there they don't tolerate uh you know texting or being on your phone it's just you know they are the number one movie theater i've ever been to um and they own badass digest and apparently uh you know devin was removed from power badass digest birth movies death peter oh sorry yeah Sorry, they changed your name to Birth Movies Death. Uh, removed from power from Birth Movies Death. And um, apparently he's been still working for the draft house, uh, draft house all this time, writing copy for them behind the scenes without credit. Um, Fantastic Fest is coming up in Austin, Texas. Uh, and the programming catalog came out uh, this past week. And some of the entries in the catalog were credited to Devin, which set off kind of a shitstorm in the local Austin community. So much so that Tim League, the founder of the Alamo Drafthouse, released 
the following statement. I'll read from the statement. I'm not going to read the full statement. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Quote, seeing the work that Devin has been doing to acknowledge his faults, to address his addiction, and to better himself, I thought it was important to contribute to his recovery process by helping him with some means to earn a living. Once it became clear that his efforts were sincere, I offered Devin copywriting work at Elmo Drafthouse and has re- recently expanded to include writing blurbs for our Fantastic Fest guide. And here's another quote from it. Human beings make mistakes, and they... And when they acknowledge those mistakes and embark upon a journey of personal improvement, they deserve forgiveness. If, God forbid, I somehow find myself in a similar place down the road, my hope is that my actions up until this point have warranted others to offer the same help to me. So basically, Tim League is saying that he believes in giving people a second chance, but notes that Devin, quote, not uh, does not hold any leadership position in Alamo Draft House or Fantastic Fest and is not involved at all with Birth Movie's death in any capacity. Uh, it's also weird that Tim is in this statement calling it sexual misconduct and uh, sexual harassment when Devin was accused of grabbing a woman by her genitals, which I think is sexual assault. But um, today, <laughs> I know this is a long story, guys. Today, Fantastic Fest programmer Todd Brown who is uh, you know, an esteemed programmer, producer, he issued the following statement, quote, I would like to be very clear that despite over a decade of work as the director of the international programming at the Fantastic Fest, I have had no, no advanced knowledge of this decision, nor knowledge that Devin was contributing to the programming guide. I am still processing my feelings both about this decision and the fact that I, among others, was not consulted in the making of it. Uh, he has stepped down as a programmer for Fantastic Fest for all these years. Uh, another programmer came out to Hollywood Reporter, uh, not named, but he um, had been with the Com- uh, Alamo Drafthouse for seven years. And he claims that uh, he finds, quote, I find the statement to be disingenuous on Tim's part because there's never been any, never any question of whether Devin would be given that opportunity. It wasn't offered after a period of growth and change. Devin just rapidly moved into his current copywriting slash editing job after stepping down from birth movies death. Okay, so that's the situation, guys. Um you know, I'll, I'll start this off to say that I'm 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 disappointed in Tim Lake in the Alamo Drafthouse. I know that many people within the Los Angeles film community are still friends with Devin, and he's a very charming guy in person. And when you're friends with someone like this, it's hard to, you know, see the forest for the trees. Uh, uh, you you don't um see a lot of outspokenness from this community because of their personal relationship with him. And I've always been friendly with Devin on set, even though I've never been, um, you know, necessarily his friend. Uh, I haven't spoken to him since the incident, although I've seen him at some events. Uh, I'm not beyond giving someone like this a second chance or would this be the third chance or fourth chance? I don't know. Uh, but it seems wrong to me to give him a spotlight in a place with the same film community that he caused so much hurt. The message that uh, Tim and the draft house are making by giving him the spotlight, I think marginalizes his victims. And it seems from the accounts that Tim did not give Devin the job after 
he earned it after showing change. It seems like he just went from birth movie's death to the draft house. Uh, I wish no ill will for Devin. I hope he grows and learns from this incident. Uh, I have said in the past that it was gross when people were saying Colin Trevorrow would be, it should be fired from star Wars. I, I think it would be wrong for me to say that, you know, Devin should be fired from the draft house and demand that. Um, I don't think anybody should be fired. Uh, I, I do think he, he, he deserves a second chance somewhere, but it it seems so wrong. And, and not only that he does, but being spotlighted in this public capacity in front of, you know, if you, if you read, followed this incident from the beginning, this initial woman who came out, you know, had to stop going to the Draft House Theater. She had to avoid, you know, block certain things because seeing him come up in her feed would bring uh, the memories back. So uh, I, I think it is disingenuous um, and it is unfortunate that Devin is being giving a spotlight for his work, I, I mean, what, what 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 do you think, Jacob? This is a very touchy subject for me because I live in Austin. I've been going to the Draft House for ten years. I've met Tim League. I've been to his house for his Christmas parties. I think he's a, he's always been very kind to me. I've interviewed him on several occasions. He's he's one of and, the nicest guys I've met yeah. in this business, and this is probably why he is employing Devin. Yeah, and he so. When I'm disappointed by the Draft House and by Tim League and by Fantastic Fest, it comes from a, a place of these are institutions that I hold very close and dear to my heart. They are incredibly important to me, not just this, oh, that's where I go to the movies or that's my favorite, that's my favorite film festival, but places where I've met some of my best friends, where I've had incredible moments that I'll never forget. Tim League arranged for me to propose to my now wife at the theater where we first met. I, Tim League is a stand-up man who actually went above and beyond to make one of my most happiest moments happen. So it brings me no pleasure to talk about how disappointed I am by this. It's a case where Devin Faraci and I are, are not friends. We've had interactions in the past where he was perfectly friendly to me. But I kept on hearing stories, especially from a Fantastic Fest regulars and from people in the Draft House community, uh, that... He's not a good guy. I kept on blowing them off. For years, I blew them off. For years, I ignored them because I enjoyed his writing. And for years, I ignored them because I, I ignored how much of a bully he was online because I enjoyed his writing. And I, 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 people at Birth Movie's death, I consider many of them friends. I know many of them in real life. And I know that some of them were as shocked by this as I was. So the whole thing, it feels very much like a wound that's being torn open again. Because even though I have no personal beef with Evan Faraci, I know so many friends, Draft House regulars, Austin locals. I was, I'm texting a friend of mine who's a local filmmaker who just, he was just questioning, he has nothing, doesn't even write in, in the movie blogosphere. And he was texting me saying, does this mean I need to boycott the Draft House? I don't know. Because he was so concerned by this. And I, I, it's just a case where, for years, I ignored things because it was convenient, and now I feel like they're expecting us to just forgive and forget. And yeah, maybe Devin deserves a second chance. Maybe he has reformed. Maybe he is a better person now. But throwing him back in the same community where he has left scars does nobody any good. And I feel this is a case of Tim League trying to be a good friend and not understanding that 
He's representing the Draft House. He's representing Neon Films, which he co-founded. He's representing Mondo. He's representing hundreds, if not thousands, of employees who now are being tainted by a figure who has hurt a lot of people. And I, I wish him the best. I hope he has healed. I hope he has moved on. And I have so many friends who are good friends of him who say he has going to act together. But I, I, I genuinely feel like this is the wrong, incorrect choice on just about every level. Yeah, I think even if you were to give him a second chance, it should be in the background. It should be as a copy writer. Do you know what I mean? It shouldn't be with this credited spotlight work. Uh, HT, what do, do you have any feelings about this situation? Well, I am not as familiar with the situation as you are because I don't have an Alamo draft house in my area. I'm not as close to the community as both of you are. I only know of Devin Faraci. I just, I think that it was underhanded of draft house to not um, to hire him immediately to rehire him immediately after he stepped down from birth movies death, because we were, uh, the film committee was given the impression that he was going to leave his position to reflect on his actions. He was going to, as he said, go into rehabilitation for alcoholism. And it seemed like that was the appropriate thing to do. But having we're going almost immediately back into the field and uh, going back into writing, even though it was uncredited, I think for me seems like it wasn't taking into account the um, feelings and concerns of the, the people that he victimized and the people that he bullied. So I, yeah, I don't think that Draft House went about this the right way. And I think... I do sympathize with the idea of giving second chances, but um, I would I don't think that this was the way to do it. I mean, obviously, he's friends with Devin and uh, sticking by him, but it's probably not the smartest business decision. It's not the smartest. Uh, if you care about your customers and those that have been hurt by his actions, it, it seems like a really, really sleazy. And I don't know. It just it feels wrong. Well, I guess the final thing I want to say is that I feel really crap about this because it means that a place I like going to and a film festival I love going to are making me feel real bad, and that's really selfish. And I should be thinking more about the people who have been harmed and can't even consider going back to enjoying the things I want to enjoy. So I'm in this weird situation where my initial gut reaction is, oh, I want things to be better again. At the same time, I'm worried they never will be because I can't overlook how things that are, that are important to me have potentially hurt people who are more important than me. So, yeah, we'll have to watch the situation and see if anything else develops. Um, but let's move on. From does, does anybody else have any parting thoughts on this? Okay, guys. Let's move on into the mailbag to something more uh, positive, I guess. Uh, right, let's laugh again, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Sherwin, Sherwin from the Bay Area asks, Hey, Peter, it was discussed on the podcast previously why J.J. Abrams didn't have a plan or outline beyond Episode 7 at all. I could uh, help but wonder was, wasn't that supposed to be the job of the Lucasfilm Story Group? Perhaps I misunderstood what their purpose is, but I had thought that they were supposed to oversee and steer Star Wars canon and stories so that there was a single cohesive continuity. 
Does their influence not expand to the films? I had thought it would be similar to how those how there was at one point a Transformers stories group that would determine the films for the next decade or so. Anyways, I find it puzzling that the current trilogy wasn't hashed out before episode seven even started filming. At least there, that's what it seems right now. Even MCU had a loose outline of where they wanted to go, which eventually led to the Avengers film and beyond. I do listen daily. Thanks to you and the crew. Okay. Uh, I'll say some quick things and I'll, I'll start this off as, uh, I was hoping when they announced this, uh, the Lucasfilm story group, I was hoping that that was going to be their job is to kind of plan this up because nothing bothers me more when there's a TV show that seems like, you know, it's a great setup and it seems like they're making it up as they go along. You know, I want to know that there's a plan, uh, not just with, you know, TV shows, but with these uh, cinematic universes. And it seems, though, from early on, it was made clear from Pablo and others that the filmmakers were given their kind of, like, reign to do whatever they want. And basically, the the Lucasfilm Story Group, what their responsibilities are. And this is my assumption. By the way, I contacted Pablo Hildalgo, the head of – or one of the uh, heads of the uh, Lucasfilm Story Group, to come on today or to uh, answer this question. And he uh, – declined respectively and uh he's a good person but uh he obviously didn't want to tackle this on here um anyways from what i've gotten from him in public settings and interviews is that the lucasfilm story group is kind of there to facilitate the filmmaker and screenwriter's vision to uh you know to make sure that it fits within canon and that the you know future stories be it books video games comic books uh TV shows that it you know is not breaking canon in any way and is cohesive but I don't think they were ever you know in a room like let's plan out these three Star Wars films and have a treatment or an outline for you know these filmmakers the filmmaker you know Ryan Johnson has said that he had like almost complete creative reign to do whatever he wanted with The Last Jedi so that that's what I think is going on here, that they're treating it like, um, I don't know, they're, they're treating it like, you know, just like have a filmmaker come on and pick it up from there. Do you know what I mean? There might be some threads that have been left open and some ideas of where it could go, but there is no like grand plan. And, you know, this is my speculation. We tried to get someone from Lucasfilm Story Group to come on here and, you know, tell us for sure. But that's what that's my reading of it. Jacob, you have some thoughts. I do. My main reaction is that I'm kind of glad it's this way because if theoretically Lucasfilm had planned out a sequel trilogy from beat to beat, film to film, completely pulled it hard, even a single director, that leaves so little room for the, the alchemy that happens when you find the, like the perfect character or a perfect casting and things click in surprising and fun ways. I remember there were stories going around a couple of years ago about how Ryan Johnson was asked to tweak the Last Jedi screenplay when Lucasfilm realized just how much the audience audiences loved all the new characters like Finn and Ray and Poe Dameron. And he ended up actually consolidating a lot of the new characters and a lot of their business into the new characters because people responded to them so positively and strongly. And I think that kind of flexibility is really important in any kind of franchise, the ability to, to recognize this works, this doesn't and have the wiggle room to pivot. And 
I don't want Star Wars to be something that's like mathematically lined out. I want Star Wars to be the kind of thing, the kind of sandbox that has rules that are maybe overseen by a story group, a story group that's there to make sure you stay in that box, make sure you play by the rules, but offers up all the necessary toys to let filmmakers do what they do. And so I'm all for the existence of story groups to bounce around ideas, help filmmakers, but I also feel like making it too rigid is a huge mistake. How about you, HT? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, my impression of the Lucasfilm story group was that they're just the gatekeepers for continuity, like you said. Um, I think it's funny that uh, this listener mentioned the MCU as even them having a loose outline when they are the kind of gold standard for uh, having a sort of very rigid rigid through line for all their movies. Uh, Whereas, yeah, I think that it's a little bit looser and more... um, dependent on the filmmakers for both Lucasfilm and other franchises. It's just interesting, though. I I, I wish I mean, I agree, Jacob, that I don't think that it should have a rigid outline of what the trilogy should be. But I kind of wish that they had something planned. Like, I feel like I feel like Ray in the original drafts of Force Awakens, as we've talked previously, she was you know, Han and Leia's daughter. Um, I think that's clear in some moments that are that are left in the film. And I think in the final cut, you know, those that conclusion was taken out of the final draft of the film and the final cut of the film. Uh, and I think when J.J. ended up leaving Force Awakens to Disney and Lucasfilm, there wasn't like some set like, oh, who are Ray's parents? It, I don't think it was decided. I think it was Ryan's bald pickup and to go on with it. And I feel like there should be a plan because I think it it's so much more rewarding if we can go back and look at Force Awakens and see some, you know, some hints at something or, do you know what I mean? Like, not just setting this up episodically, which I know this is episodic, but, you know, having it being a rewarding experience in that way. Um, it also seems to me that the Lucasfilm Story Group is kind of secondary to the films. They're kind of, you know, when books come out or comic books or TV shows, they're kind of like playing catch up with the movies and like, how can we tie this with the movie and not like have this book actually set something up that's going to come in, you know, the next film or the next Han Solo movie or the, do you know what I mean? Like it's not this interwoven universe that I kind of wanted it to be as a fan. Uh, but I guess uh, I guess it doesn't matter in the end. I do want to leave with this um, the story that I posted in 2016 from the Star Wars uh, celebration that Pablo Hildago said on stage, and this is an example of how the story group, you know, influences the films. In Star Wars: The Force Awakens, Han Solo and Chewbacca discover that the Millennium Falcon has been on Jakku for years, and Han comments that he knew they should have double checked the Western reaches. Uh, that isn't how it was originally written in the script when Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams wrote the original screenplay. Solo said that, quote, they should have checked, double-checked the Outer Rim. Um, Lucasfilm story group member Pablo Hildago informed Abrams that the Outer Rim was actually too large of an area for that time, for that line to really make sense and, you know, suggested that it should be a smaller region in Star Wars Galaxy like the Western Reaches. So I think that's like in a in a capsule kind of how the star wars store group kind of 
has a conversation with the movies. You know, they're they're there to be like, no, you can't do that with the force. The force, you know, does this, this, and this. Do you know what I mean? Like they're um, there to be the guidelines and the ruler and the measuring, but not the the dictator. Um, is, is there any other thoughts on this? No, I think we covered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> okay, cool. Hopefully that. Um, and, and by the way, we don't know that there isn't an outline for the for the other Star Wars films. This is all assumptions because no one involved in Star Wars talks about anything because it's the secrecy. And with J.J. Abrams coming on, we're gonna be seeing less and less information Re- getting out there. Re-entering the 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 uh, mystery box, Peter. Yes, welcome back to the mystery <laughs> box. Um. I mean, it, it's interesting. I should mention, though, that when Star Wars Force Awakens was being made, none of the, like, kind of tie-in books and stuff were kind of, like, given information. Like, they, J.J. shut those people out of the mystery box. So they kind of, like, had to create those things last minute or with very few details. And um, it kind of resulted in this, you know, this less than connected feeling since then the Lucasfilm story group and these other entities, I, th- I feel like it's been more connected. We see Sagra on rebels at the same time that he's in rogue one on the big screen. And there's kind of like that kind of continuity. And now the JJ is back in and the mystery box is shut. Uh, again, I think we're going to see that disconnected universe again. Sadly, again, if you want to send a question to the mailbag, send it to Peter at slash Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention the question on the air. HT, where can we find more of your work on the internet? I'm on slashfilm.com. I my Twitter is htranbui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes. And how about you, Jacob? I am the managing editor at slashfilm.com, and I'm there every single day. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Uh, you can find me at Slash Home and on SlashFilm.com. You can find all these stories on SlashFilm.com. Uh, you know, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Just search Slash Film Daily. You will find us. If you're on iTunes, please give us a review. Rate us. It helps us out. Spread the word. And we will see you tomorrow.